Welcome to the Gaggle Podcast, where we bring you inside the newsroom to talk Arizona politics beyond what's in print. I'm Yvonne Winget Sanchez, the Governor's Office and State Politics Reporter at the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Joining me this week at our Arizona Capitol Bureau are... Ron Hansen. I cover the congressional delegation. Ryan Randazzo. I'm a business reporter. Phoenix City Hall reporter Jessica Babe. This week on The Gaggle, Governor Ducey said he's axed 676 regulations since taking office. But did he really? Should government stop funding sports stadiums? But first, days before Steve Montenegro, the former state senator, decided to run for Congress... A Senate staffer was trading flirtatious text messages with a cell phone number associated with him, according to a record of the messages viewed by the Arizona Republic. Ron Hansen and I spent two weeks tracking down this story. Ron, give us the highlights. Wow. Uh, so these text messages that we reviewed really sort of paint a picture of a very familiar relationship between uh, Mr. Montenegro and this staffer. And... What we see is banter that is occasionally about work, occasionally about uh, travel, work, uh, other sorts of issues, the World Series. But it also took a turn in the fall to something that seemed to suggest a, a more, uh, more familiar relationship between the two, that at the end of November, this staffer uh, felt comfortable enough to share a topless picture of herself um, to Mr. Montenegro's phone, and his response was to direct her to Snap, uh, an evident uh, uh, reference to Snapchat, the app where people can send photos that self-destruct after a while. And so it it just, again, points to this relationship that had uh, turned into something that uh, might not square with his image as a minister and uh, a conservative politician trying to run for Congress uh, today. Ron, as you know, down here at the state capitol, there have long been rumors about Mr. Montenegro and perhaps um, actions or activities by him that might not square with that image. This is the only evidence, though, that has emerged as credible in terms of, you know, undercutting that image that he's made for himself. What are the significance of these text messages politically for him? Well, I think that the idea that you can be a minister and be carrying on with a junior staffer at the same time, I mean, that just doesn't compute. So this could be a real problem. And at a minimum, it has had probably two impacts. One, it kept him off the campaign trail for uh, a week at the at a crucial stage in this Republican primary. Let's be clear, the district that they're running in is in the West Valley. It's a very conservative district where we would expect that whoever emerges from the Republican primary will most likely end up going to Washington uh, to represent the district. So... Uh, to take a week out of your campaign when you get to this uh, critical stage of this primary is, you know, fairly devastating to his campaign just on that basis alone. The other thing is that now that there's less than a week to go, it really sort of changes the narrative for him at any other public appearances he might 
go to uh, if there's a debate. Other candidates will be emboldened to talk about this more openly and press him on it. He could hear about it from people who ask him questions uh, at panels or just constituents uh, who would want to know more about this. Remember, this is a seat that is only open because Trent Franks washed out after sexual misconduct complaints about him last year involving staffers. So um, this is really sort of uh, a pretty unhelpful narrative at a very uh, poor time for uh, Mr. Montenegro. So we spent quite a bit of time reviewing these messages, and the, the, the documents that we reviewed showed that the messages began on June 15th of last year and ended on February 1st of this year with a message from her to him saying, you need to call me right now. And as you mentioned, you know, they talked about office politics. They talked about his one-time bid for the Secretary of State's office. That was the office he was eyeing before he jumped into the congressional race. He shared his Snapchat uh, profile with her. They talked about the heat they talked about, um, you know, lunches, his traveling to a conference to Nashville, uh, where he sat on the plane, what hotel room he was staying at, what they were serving for lunch. Uh, they talked about the personalities of staffers within the state Senate. And in one instance, while he was in Nashville, he texted her after the topless photo at 1.35 in the morning, Tennessee time. What does this say to you about the nature of this relationship? Well, clearly they had gone beyond just co-workers, people who knew each other from being at the same place. Um, you know, I think one of the things that's important, you mentioned that these text messages that we reviewed go back to June. Remember, the legislature was already out of session in June. So this is a relationship that is continuing because there is a continued interest in being in touch. And when we see this uh, uh, string of messaging going into the fall, we see that the banter is about things that have really nothing to do with work. Uh, it's about watching the World Series and who are you rooting for talking about the house that he had purchased and whether it has a pool and uh, the staffer saying that she actually prefers hot tubs. It's then you get to the uh, when the photo is sent. Uh, just before that, uh, there had been some discussion about from Steve Montenegro to this staffer that she should have been able to attend this trip to Tennessee with him. Um, this conference because she could have an opportunity to, you know, enhance her knowledge for work, but also it would put her in the same place with him. She sends this topless photo, and a few hours later, in the middle of the night, really, uh, Steve Montenegro sends a response saying, you, you should have come. And it's just, it's the sort of thing that... Um, it really suggests a relationship there that is beyond anything that has to do with work or even just friendly chat with somebody you know. There's something deeper going on here, obviously, and it's the kind of thing that voters may want to know more about, especially as they uh, consider who to uh, replace Trent Franks with. There was one passage uh, from December 7th of last year that I've heard from quite a few people this 
this morning who were unaware of the story that, you know, they found pretty damning. And he asks her at 2.11 p.m., you have a sec? I have a question regarding a tweet. She says, sure, what's up? Can you call me? Yeah, it's crazy stuff happening. Thank you. Did someone call you out, she asks. He says, nope. Are you afraid someone might? He says, just lining my ducks in an order. Nope. She says, yeah, you would never, ever have to worry about me, so I hope that puts you at some ease. I just saw the Trent Franks thing. He says, crazy. That passage, again, indicates that he may feel the need to make sure that he doesn't need to button anything up with her to make sure that that their communications are not made public. That's right. Uh, You know, again, think of the dynamics in play here. You've got a state senator who's about to run for Congress. Why would he need to turn to a junior staffer at the legislature with anything that uh, she might be worried about? It's just something that... um, this is somebody who should be fairly extraneous to Steve Montenegro's life at that point. Clearly, she was not. And this is something that is, again, pointing to a, a depth of some sort of relationship, whatever it was, that goes well past just being co-workers or, or being in the same place, um, which really sort of leads to another whole issue on all of this. I know you've looked at the whole question of... Uh, workplace boundaries and rules on these sorts of things covering the Don Shooter expulsion. Where does this leave us now with the state Senate? That's a good question, and I think it's one that we'll be following in the coming days. There is no written policy over at the Senate that prohibits uh, staffers and members from dating, as Mike Phillipson, the, the Senate GOP spokesman, called it. Verbally, during orientation, folks are told that they are to avoid these types of relationships. But again, there's no written policy. And even the written policy that they have on sexual harassment, I mean, you could drive a semi-truck through that thing, really. Um, they, there are so many workarounds in terms of um, trying to resolve sexual harassment complaints informally versus formally who needs to know whether or not those pub- those records ever become public. In the Senate's case, they do not. And I think in the wake of this story, people down here will be having some pretty serious conversations about whether or not that policy needs to be retooled. Separately, we should say, this was a consensual relationship between Mr. Montenegro and the staffer. That's right. Uh, there's no indication that the, that this involves coercion or anything untoward in that respect. Again, this is something that may be um, at odds with somebody who uh, holds themselves up as a minister and, and frequently invokes his wife and has used her image uh, and her words to push his campaign forward. But uh, the staffer was an, a willing, if not eager, participant in these text messages and And we've not had any indication to the contrary. We should also note that uh, Mr. Montenegro's campaign has declined since last week to comment to our uh, inquiries about the messages. Um, He did release a statement uh, about the text messages uh, calling, uh, reporting about it, false tabloid trash. Uh, We tried 
late into the night to get his um, campaign consultant, Constantine Carrard, to specify and detail exactly what about those text messages was false. Uh, we did not hear back from him. But uh, Mr. Montenegro's um, statement said uh, he assumed that the distortions would be limited to his votes or positions on issues. He said, quote, tonight I saw a despicable example of the tabloid trash that conservatives around this country have to deal with on a regular basis. I am blessed with an amazing wife and marriage. The media wants to drag us down with just a week to go, but we are not going to dignify this false tabloid trash with any further response. That uh, statement came hours after 12 News uh, first aired uh, their own story about their uh, their own viewing of the text messages. Our story posted uh, a few hours later. going to take a hard right turn on this one now. Ryan, you were the only reporter to attend Governor Doug Ducey's uh, briefing about what he has done to eliminate regulations since taking office in 2015. Uh, the elimination of regulations has been a big theme of his administration, as we all know. It's a big, big deal for Republicans. But did he really eliminate that many? Uh, the bottom line, no. They did make 676 changes to their credit, and many of these were eliminating uh, rules, but many of them were changes. And in some instances, when they made an elimination, they created several new rules in its place. For example, there previously was a prohibition against using reclaimed water and putting it right into a drinking water system. There are companies now that uh, can take uh, reclaimed water and purify it enough that it's safe to drink. And so the state wanted to change that rule and allow that to happen. So they did repeal that rule, but they created a bunch of rules about when you can use reclaimed water. So they didn't count that in their net uh, 676 rule eliminations because Charles and David Koch back in Wichita don't want to hear about all the new rules that were created out in Arizona. They want to hear about the ones that were eliminated. So that's what we heard about last week. Well, speaking of Charles and David and all the other business folks out there, how how do how does this help them? How does this help business owners? Well, again, to their credit, they calculated in, a, in what they called a conservative way how much money these eliminations would save businesses. And they did that by trying to figure out how many businesses have to follow these rules, how long it takes them to comply with the rules that were out of date or obsolete or nonsensical in some cases, because they weren't all major changes. Some were eliminating rules that had had outlived their useful lives, that dealt with like lottery winners prior to 1983, and the rule was simply out of date. Um, and they calculated how much money it would save if they didn't have to figure out how to comply with these. In some cases, a company like a construction company dealing with an air quality rule, they might just have their lawyer look at it and it wouldn't cost them much because they already have that lawyer on retainer. But in other instances, they might have to have a project manager review the state rules and regulations, and then they would be confused by the obsolete rules or nonsensical rules. And then they might end up calling ADEQ or the Department of Revenue or someone and basically wasting time. So they used a really conservative estimate, and they came up with $48 million in annual savings to Arizona businesses by repealing or changing all of these rules. So they 
said that through this process, they wouldn't get rid of anything that would harm public safety or public health, right? Correct. So this really focused on kind of the mundane, nonsensical, really not needed regulations that people probably, normal people wouldn't even see or feel the impact of. In many instances, they were either, you know, entirely obsolete, and they did say that they wouldn't eliminate anything that would affect public health or safety. But another example is there was a a rule regarding stroke patients and where you took them uh, regarding a hospital. And again, they didn't think that made sense. There There were different facilities that could handle stroke patients, so they, quote, repealed that rule. But what they really did is they created three different types of hospitals where you could take stroke patients, and they created new rules regarding when you would take them to these different hospitals. So again, big picture-wise, they, they got rid of this restriction on where you could transport stroke patients. But the rule book is larger today because they've added all these new definitions of places where you could transport stroke patients. Yeah, that runs counter to the whole shrinking government thing. So take us into the briefing. You were the only reporter there. Who who else who else was there with you, and why did no other reporter show up? Um, I'm not exactly sure why nobody else uh, chose to participate in this one, but I had um, people from the Department of Revenue and from the governor's staff um, and some attorneys explaining uh, what all these changes were because there were literally 23 pages of rules repealed or changed, and that was just listing the ARS or, or uh, section of, of state rules that were changed without any definitions in it. So there's quite a bit to work through, um, and, we, and we went through some of them on a case-by-case basis, you know, having them explain what exactly the prior rule was and, and what it was changed to. Jessica, you've written about legislation that would ban uh, the government from providing taxpayer funds to professional sports teams for stadiums. Tell us about the legislation. So this is kind of an interesting set of bills. Um, Basically, it would prohibit cities, states, counties, any form of government from giving money or funding in any way, either a new sports facility or renovating an existing sports facility for a professional team. Uh, But what's interesting about it is that it's actually set up to be part of a compact with other states. So even if one of these bills pass here in Arizona, it wouldn't actually take effect until at least 24 other states adopted something similar. And the idea behind that is that you're creating this compact of states who are going to say no to the bullies in the professional sports world who will just say, well, okay, Arizona, you're not going to pay for my new ballpark. We're going to go to Nevada. Um, So the idea is that you erase that temptation um, and hopefully uh, erase taxpayers' involvement in sports. Why do you think we're seeing this now? I think there's been a huge culture shift when it comes to what people think of sports facilities. I think when, you know, the existing round of sports arenas that we have now were first constructed, there was more motivation. Uh, Phoenix was super excited and not just Phoenix, but the Metro. Um, They were super excited to welcome all of these teams here. And I think that, you know, there's been a lot of research done, you know, on both conservative and more progressive fronts that show that the payoff of 
the arenas being located in a city is not always as great as the amount of money that these cities or counties are actually putting into said facilities. So I think that people right now, especially when you look in Phoenix, we're facing a huge pension issue. We have a lot of budget issues that need to be addressed, Uh, sports facilities, people seem to think, why would I pay for a millionaire's sports facility when they should just do it themselves? That's a fair point. And this would seem, this legislation, and it's model legislation, I'm assuming? It is. is. So Americans for Prosperity is trying to run this across the country. Right now, there's only four other states that have uh, proposed something similar. And Americans for Prosperity, for those who are not intimately familiar with the 990s, is the political arm of the Charles and David Koch. Um, they're also, uh, it, they run in the same network as Randy Kendrick, who is a big Ducey supporter, and she's the wife of D-backs owner Ken Kendrick. Uh, they use public funds for that stadium. Have we heard from them about this? Well, I can't speak for them, but I also would like to know how this affects the Bidwell family, uh, the recipients of uh, taxpayer largesse as well for the stadium in Glendale, uh, for the Cardinals. You know, this whole issue just really kind of strikes me as as interesting. I'm kind of torn on it. As a big sports fan, uh, I like sports and it's fun to watch it, but as a taxpayer, I'm also troubled at the cost for these kinds of facilities, which have just spiraled in recent years. Stadiums these days are are funded with billions. A billion dollar stadium is not unheard of anymore uh, in some cases. And that's just something that is staggering at a time of increasing awareness of income inequality, schools across the country that are in desperate need of resources, not to mention the ever-present hand-wringing over what to do about America's infrastructure more broadly. But, you know, as it relates to Arizona, it's kind of interesting to me that this state would even entertain the idea. We've been the benefit, uh, beneficiary of these kinds of uh, races in the past to offer subsidies to teams to come to the Cactus League. The Cardinals were lured from St. Louis. The um, the Coyotes came from another market. So this is something that uh, Arizona has been the beneficiary of this kind of game. And I wonder if this kind of thinking, if it gets any traction to think of it more broadly in terms of corporate subsidies, that Uh, There's this sort of race to the bottom with state tax policy um, to lure employers uh, with promises of of wondrous economic growth that seems to always be just around the corner. It is definitely ironic because every single facility of a professional sports team here in Arizona, with the exception of maybe uh, Salt River Fields, I would say, um, has used public money and has, you know, been lured from other places. And, you know, you mentioned Salt River Fields. That's actually on tribal territory. So would this compact even apply to uh, tribal space? Uh, Because there's been at least some chatter that uh, the tribes may be interested in, in pulling in more facilities, more teams. So to the extent Arizona would be in this agreement, if it ever got off the ground in the first place, would we sort of have an out that there's a significant uh, way that they could still be lured using um, a, a participant, uh, someone who is not even a participant to this deal? 
That's a good point. I imagine that it couldn't apply to tribal lands because that is an independent um, entity. So there's no way that it could. Um, I, I do think it's just interesting in general. I think there has been um, kind of a change in the way that we view things. And I think part of that um, has been what happened in Glendale with the coyotes. I think the coyotes have kind of handed uh, these legislators who want to make this argument their argument. I mean, it seemed like almost immediately after Glendale put forth a lot of money and will continue to be paying off that arena for you know, at least 15 more years, uh, you know, they were threatening to leave. And I think that was kind of what lit the fire under Arizona taxpayers to not be supportive of this anymore. And rest easy, Jessica's beloved Packers aren't going anywhere. For our final segment, we bring you Pony Up the Records. Ron, who are you awaiting public records from this week? Okay, so back to the text messages. Uh, Among the things that was discussed in those text messages was a trip by Steve Montenegro, evidently, to El Salvador. What we would like to know is where are some records on that? We would like to see either from the State Department, the U.S. Embassy, the state legislature, if there's any kind of documentation that would tend to corroborate that assertion by him of a trip to El Salvador last fall, that is what's on my mind. Ryan? I'm waiting to hear back from Salt River Project uh, regarding some information I requested on their elections. Jessica? To stay on the sports front, um, the city of Phoenix is uh, trying to figure out what to do with the Phoenix Suns and their arena. And they, more than a year ago, hired a contractor to produce a study as to how renovations of the arena would work. Um, They recently renewed that contract, but not before saying publicly. And to me, um, I have had a records request in, and before me, Dustin had a records request in um, for at least since... May. um, And apparently there just aren't any records. This contractor that they're now hiring again um, has not produced a study. So this is uh, somewhat old news, but new news to me as I keep asking for it every week. Stay on it. I'm waiting for resignation letters that uh, Ryan and I really want to get a peek at uh, from the Department of Administration. And these are people who would have resigned around the same time as former Department of Administration Director Craig Brown's abrupt resignation. That's it for today. Thank you for listening to The Gaggle Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Yvonne Winget. You can find me at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N. I'm at Utility Reporter. I'm at jbame underscore news, and BAME is, of course, spelled B-O-E-H-M. Thanks to the politics team and also our producers, Hey Hey Haley Sanchez and Nick Serpa. Please subscribe to the show and review it on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. See you next week.